It was peak pandemic, a gray Monday in February 2021, before most people had been vaccinated and a month after the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. I was working in my home office in a city neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio, when my phone rang. It was my neighbor from three doors down, Jamila, calling with a pretty alarming message. Don't go near any of your front windows, she said. There's a guy out there with a gun. Jamila went on to explain that a young man who lived in the house directly across the street from me had had an episode in public about an hour before. Without warning or apparent instigation, he'd marched up the front stoop of another neighbor's house and torn down their Black Lives Matter flag, yelling about white power, Jamila said. Then, she said, he crossed the street and broke into a house that was empty and had recently gone up for sale. Someone called the police, and when they arrived, an officer said the guy had a gun. Jamila, who's black and understandably felt personally threatened by all this, repeated her warning not to go near the windows. I was already in motion. My 10-month-old son was downstairs, and with him were my mother and father-in-law, who were watching him for the day. And below them, my husband Ted was working from his home office in the basement. I stole a look out a front window as I headed for the stairs. I saw two police cars parked at either end of our short block, lights flashing. But other than that, the street looked deserted. Downstairs, I was grateful to find my son and mother and father-in-law in our kitchen in the back of the house. Ted came up from the basement, and all five of us gathered in the kitchen. The adults stood together in an awkward huddle, watching the baby crawl around on the floor. <laughs> My mother and father-in-law told us they'd moved back here from the family room after seeing the police cars arrive. See, they were they had cordoned off the street. Yeah. When I looked out, when Dad looked out, it didn't look like anything. And then the cops parallel on both yeah. sides. The is still there. Yeah. Is it yeah. parallel or? None of us was sure how nervous we should be. The situation sounded scary, but apart from the cop cars out front. Nothing seemed actively wrong. The street itself was almost unnaturally quiet. I tuned into the Cleveland police scanner on my laptop to see if I could learn more. Cars on 76, switch to TAC 2 and give me a roll call. Sam 12 to Sam 14, make sure everybody's buying cover. Also, send someone to the back of the property. So it seemed like they were staking out the guy's house from the back, which explained why I couldn't see anything on the street. I gave my neighbor, Aubrey Winkler, a call to see if I could learn more. She's the one who lived in the house that had the Black Lives Matter flag out front, along with her husband, Tim Kruger, and their two-year-old daughter. The cops came, and the guy, they like, the cops seem like they don't really know what to do. Like, he hasn't apparently done, like, anything so severe that they're like, we clearly need to arrest him right now, but they're also like seemingly not going to leave him here. He hasn't like actually shot a gun or anything off as far as you know, has he? No. All I heard about a gun was a police officer yelling, he has a gun. And that was 45 minutes ago. We like went upstairs hit for a while and now I'm kind of just hanging out. And the cops are like here just like I know, it's taking forever. I like don't know what's happening. This went on for the next four hours or so. It kind of felt like a quarantine within a quarantine, like we were doubly trapped in our house, not just by the pandemic, but by a man with a gun. Occasionally, we'd see the guy step out his front door. Either he'd seem to engage the cops with his arms up in what looked like surrender, or he'd seem to be cursing at them. 
waving his arms and telling them to go away, like Aubrey said. He looked vaguely familiar, a white guy with dirty blonde hair, maybe around 30, thin. He might have moved in recently as a renter, we thought. Only one update came over the scanner, which seemed to confirm Aubrey's assessment that the guy was unstable. Be advised, I guess the male said they are going to come kill him, but wouldn't elaborate on who they are. Then, as if for comic relief, except it wasn't entirely funny because it was also a little scary at first, we saw a guy in a black hoodie jump the fence in our backyard. Was it the potential shooter? Then he got closer, and we saw he was carrying some paper bags. It was the Whole Foods delivery guy. We'd placed an order that morning, and by the time he'd arrived, our block was off limits. He'd taken it on himself to find another way to get us our food. We thanked him as he dropped off our organic baby food jars and formula and made sure to leave him an extra nice tip. Finally, just before 5 p.m., we saw the guy across the street come out of his house accompanied by a few police officers. He seemed to willingly get in a squad car parked out front, no handcuffs or weapons in sight. At that point, I'd already been working for about a month on the project that would become this podcast. My idea was this. In the first season of Inside the Bricks, I focused on a neighborhood on the brink of a complete rebuild. That neighborhood was Woodhill Homes, a public housing estate on Cleveland's east side. Well, as I was wrapping up that season, I started thinking about my own neighborhood on the other side of town. It too was going through some major changes. No, not everything was being torn down and rebuilt, like at Woodhill Homes, but just walking or driving around, it seemed like every day I saw new for sale signs in front of freshly flipped houses, going for five or six times what Ted and I had paid for our house. Just about as often, a crane or backhoe would rumble to life on a newly fenced construction site. I started to feel like I wanted to do in my neighborhood what I'd done at Woodhill Homes to take a step back and talk to real people, my own neighbors this time, about how they felt seeing the changes happening around them. And this incident with the stolen flag, it felt like a sign that yes, this was exactly the right time to get out and have those conversations. On this single afternoon, on this single block, it felt like all the silent tension in the neighborhood over race and class had boiled over and been made visible. And for the five hours of that standoff, All of us, my white and black neighbors who'd been hiding in their houses, the guy with the gun, the Whole Foods delivery guy, the police, we had to face up to the fact that we were part of that tension, whether we wanted to be or not. I knew my neighborhood wasn't unique either. Tension like this is happening in neighborhoods all over the country. The irony was, the conditions that created the tension were the same ones that made me fall in love with this neighborhood to begin with, and why I still love it. Ted and I wanted to live in a neighborhood where not everyone made the same amount of money as we did, or were white like we were, or held the same political beliefs as we did. For us, all that difference felt more like living in the real world, like a daily reminder of the ways that we can be different and still be the same an antidote to the fear and suspicion of people unlike ourselves that can so easily creep into the human brain. And frankly, being different ourselves, i.e. gay men raising a kid, we just felt more comfortable in a place where all kinds of people are welcome. I want to be clear that what happened that one day, it's far from typical. Mostly, what happens here is this. 
The immigrant family from Guinea next door, cooing at our son from their back porch as they cook fish stew. Say hi to the boy, okay? All right, Elizabeth, thank you. The Italian-American family across the street with the Trump 2020 campaign sign out front, who happily plowed the sidewalks of the elderly Biden supporters next door. Opera music pouring out the open front door of one neighbor's house on a warm summer day. While a few minutes later, a car drives past playing hip hop music. The family's two and three doors down, one black, one white, whose kids leave chalk drawings of hearts and stars and trees on our front walk, or sometimes just write their names, as if to say, I see you, I hope you see me too. I feel like all of that is so precious and so precarious. To me, it feels like the neighborhood is at this almost utopian point where just about anyone could live here and feel welcome, no matter their race or income or gender or political beliefs. In my experience, there aren't many places in the world that feel that way. But it also feels like all that might not last much longer if things continue the way they're going. Is there any way to preserve that feeling of openness? And to take a step back, do my neighbors feel the same way I do? That this neighborhood is at this idyllic moment? After all, I'm white and male and was raised middle class in the suburbs. I have a lot of economic advantages and a lot of choices about where I can live. But maybe people from different backgrounds feel the neighborhood is going in the wrong direction. Or conversely, that it still has to get even fancier or more expensive before it'll be really great. That's some of what I want to explore in this series. And I hope even if you live in a neighborhood completely unlike mine, the stories you'll hear will make you think in new ways about where you live and maybe even inspire you in this time of social isolation that started even before the pandemic to get to know your neighbors better. We'll be doing it by looking at a different house, building, or spot in the neighborhood each episode. We'll look behind the facade of that place to the people who built it, live in it, or use it, and have real conversations about why neighborhoods change and how that feels. Welcome to Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood. Episode one, the house with the bird bath, otherwise known as my house. So I'm going to get to a conversation with my husband, Ted, about how we ended up here in a couple minutes. But first, I wanted to give you a general lay of the land. What is this place? Where is it? And what does it look like? Hey! Hi there! How are you? Okay, how are you? <laughs> and to do that, I got together with Natalia Garcia, who works with me at IdeaStream as a multiple media producer. She also lives in the neighborhood with her husband and her dog. Natalia was born and raised in Mexico. She moved with her parents to Pennsylvania shortly before college and came to Cleveland about four years ago after graduating from Penn State University. We met up outside a neighborhood coffee shop and bakery called Gypsy Beans and Baking Company. And so like, what do you see just like physically when you look around this intersection? I see a couple of little shops. I see a lot of restaurants. I see what looks to me traffic for a tight street. And even though it's raining, there's people walking around. The corner this shop is on, West 65th Street and Detroit Avenue, is pretty much the downtown of the neighborhood. 
Aside from the coffee shop, the century-old brick buildings are home to a bar specializing in vintage pinball games, a Puerto Rican restaurant, an independent movie theater, an experimental live theater, and a donut shop that also serves craft beer. In fact, the place is so hip, the donuts are made with beer. The location within Cleveland is also really convenient and special. Uh, So we're west of downtown, south of the lake. So we're, I, I guess I can see, but where I'm standing, I could walk straight down into the lake. The lake, as in Lake Erie, one of the five Great Lakes, 11th largest body of fresh water in the world. You'll be hearing a lot about the lake through this series because it really defines this neighborhood in a lot of ways. And unlike a lot of places in Cleveland, you can actually get to the lake pretty easily because of some new access roads and bike paths that have been built in the last decade or so. Since Natalia is a relative newcomer to both Cleveland and the neighborhood, I was interested in how she'd describe it to others. And right away, a loaded word came up. Not gentrification, but hipster. I, w- I would actually call it pretty hipster. It's like, it's up and coming. It's, uh, it, I do think it's transitioning, but you can still see that there's all sorts of people from uh, all different cultures. So yeah, it's still pretty colorful. Do you self-identify as a hipster? I knew you were gonna <laughs> ask me that. I, th- I mean, I don't, but I do fit into the hipster category. Right, so how's, what's that mean? Um, well, there's a set of hipsters that are, uh, uh, like, that they care. And then there's a set of hipsters that they pretend to care. And I think that I'm, I like to think that I'm one of the people who care. Like, I do recycle. I do care about the community. It's not just that I'm putting on a show. I'm not wearing Patagonia just for being a hipster. <laughs> <laughs> but because you care. Yeah. Although you are not wearing Patagonia. I'm wearing Columbia. It's You're under wearing- my rain jacket. Consider yourself a hipster? I mean, I think I'm too old to be a hipster, honestly. There's, there's no I, such thing as No, there's old, old hipsters, hipsters too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, I've never purposely tried to be a hipster, but I think I have a lot of, like, hipster taste. As if on cue, as we discuss the topic of hipsters, Natalia and I strolled past a shop called Cool World. Natalia told me she's been here before, and it specializes in 1980s nostalgia. We couldn't help but be momentarily mesmerized. Okay, so this is it? This is it, yeah. Ooh. Okay, so we're looking at a window. I see puff, like furry things over there. And some, is that a troll? It's like that little purple thing? Yeah, that little purple creature. I, I don't know, it looks like it's just a ball with purple hair and eyes. Anyway, after I tore my eyes away from the purple things with eyes, I asked Natalia about the mix of people who live here. Do you feel like it's a comfortable place for people of like all kinds of races and ethnicities to live right now, or do you think it's like more comfortable for some people? I think it's more comfortable for maybe hipsters, but I don't think that it's more of a race thing. I like I I'm Mexican and I don't feel discriminated in any way like in my parents neighborhood we're the only Mexican people in our street not here but when I asked Natalia if she felt like she could see herself living here long term her answer is pretty blunt no I think that in a couple years I won't be able to afford to live here and I don't own a house I rent I don't think I could buy a house here she said the few houses she's seen that are in her price range they don't last there was a house that I looked at like 
uh, on the market down the street uh -huh. within an hour it got sold by the time that i was gonna show my husband the listing it was gone and also i was like the fourth person to like save that listing when it was gone it was over 100. Okay, first I want to point out that this is pretty typical of how pretty much all my conversations have gone for this podcast. Even when I'm not specifically trying to talk about gentrification and housing costs, they come up. They seem to be top of mind for just about everyone who lives here. And that's not surprising. Housing prices in this neighborhood have tripled in the last five years. And that's after a long period of time when houses here were seen to have almost no value to outsiders. To people who live in bigger cities on the coasts, Natalia's story might just sound like real estate as usual. Housing is expensive. The overheated housing market during the pandemic sent prices through the roof, etc., etc., yada, yada. But for Cleveland, it's pretty remarkable. Okay, so this is the part of the series where I'm going to cite some pretty bleak statistics about Cleveland. If you live here, you've heard this stuff before, I'm sorry. But if not, you probably haven't. And it's important for context. So here we go. The city of Cleveland has lost more than half its population since 1950, and according to the 2020 census, people are still moving away. We've now fallen out of the top 50 most populous cities in the nation. Despite our fairly strong name recognition, we're now smaller than El Paso, Texas, Mesa, Arizona, and Wichita, Kansas, to name a few. All those people who've moved away from Cleveland to our own suburbs and surrounding counties mostly, but also to the sunnier and newer regions like the ones I just mentioned, they've left behind lots of empty apartments and houses and vacant lots. As of 2020, the city of Cleveland had 30,000 vacant housing units, about 15% of the total. And that's even with aggressive demolition that's torn down thousands of houses and buildings over the past couple decades in an effort to stabilize the market. For some people, all of those sobering statistics raise a question. In a city like Cleveland, aren't we kidding ourselves to worry about gentrification? In other words, don't we need some neighborhoods to gentrify here just to survive? I'll be exploring that question a lot as the series goes on, but the short answer is it depends on who you talk to. What race or ethnicity are you? How much money do you have in your bank account? And how many other choices do you have about where to live? Speaking of choices of where to live, my husband and I bought our house here in 2014, before prices really went off the hook. Actually, Ted bought it by himself before we even started dating, and it was all thanks to the Gay Games, which came to Cleveland in 2014. It's the LGBTQ plus version of the Olympics, though straight people can compete too. And, uh, you know, I was organizing the soccer team. And so some of the, my teammates, actually a, a, one of the straight couples that was on our team, and they said that this neighborhood is really great. I'm not sure, you know, it, and, and I thought, well, okay, you know, it, it's a good idea. Might as well just look and see. Ted said when he went to a real estate website, our house was the first one he clicked on. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Did you just, did you click on it because it was so close to the lake? Is that what drew your attention? Uh, yeah, close to the lake, and it looked like a fixer-upper, which I thought would be something that I had the time to do. And since I didn't have a lot of money saved up, I figured I needed to buy a house that I had to put a lot of uh, sweat equity into. <laughs> that long, slow laugh we both did there, 
Yeah, if you've ever bought a fixer-upper, you're probably laughing right along with us. Or maybe at us. And then you're, you were also talking about the equity piece, or just like building up, which is a way that a lot of people think about homeownership, right? It's like, um, it's a way to build wealth or... Right, right. I mean, and then, you know, you kind of, with the whole housing bubble in 2008, you kind of, for me, I thought, you know, sweat equity and, and renovating a house, it's a bit of a gamble, depending on which neighborhood you pick. Because if I, I'm putting more money into it than I could potentially get out of it, then... And if I don't want to live there, then that's a problem. Then I'm stuck there. Getting stuck is a problem in a lot of Cleveland neighborhoods, especially predominantly black ones on the city's east side. The property values that banks and government institutions have assigned to those neighborhoods just don't support big renovation projects. The reasons are complicated, but include a decline in good-paying manufacturing jobs and redlining. That's the practice of not making loans in non-white neighborhoods. Right. But I figured with this house, if I if I hated living on the west side, um, it seemed like the neighborhood was ideal in a lot of ways, just because it was by the lake and the houses looked like that they were starting to get kind of taken care of and restored and renovated. So I figured if I didn't like living here, then I had an, an option some years down the road to kind of sell. So this is public information. Our house cost Ted $55,000. If you're from a bigger city on the coasts or really anywhere besides the Rust Belt, yep, you heard that right, $55,000. And while it did need a ton of work and a lot of money to pay for that work, even though Ted was doing a lot of it himself, Ted figured the neighborhood was on the rise and he'd be made whole in the end. And then Ted mentioned something that I touched on earlier in this episode about why I like living here. Okay, we're as a gay person, I feel more protected in this neighborhood and safer because I see the LGBT community center. I see people having rainbow flags out. And, you know, that makes me feel like, you know, this is a, a place that I feel at least, you know, I, I feel safer here just because of that aspect of who I am, you know, being yeah. gay. But like in the suburbs, I've lived in the suburbs and yeah, you do feel safe, but it's also very isolated. That's a great point though, about there's different kinds of safety and the safety you might get in the suburbs is, that's great, but there's sort of an even more important level of safety that you wanna feel, that I wanna feel right. in a neighborhood, not just like an absence of crime, but a sense of belonging and acceptance, embracing. That sense of feeling not just tolerated, but embraced, I realized from talking to Ted, that's been a huge part of why I've lived everywhere I've lived as an adult. First in New York City, where I spent my first seven years after college, and then back in Cleveland. Of course, we're overgeneralizing here. Some suburbs here and everywhere also feel LGBTQ friendly, and some city neighborhoods feel unfriendly. I think what we're really talking about when we talk about the city versus the suburbs, with the city being the good place to live, is that it has a set of ingredients that goes a little something like this. First, density. Enough people living in a concentrated enough space that there's a certain level of just natural energy, and people have experience living close to each other, getting along with people who might not be like them. Two, 
diversity of race and ethnicity, of income, of age, personal expression. Three, delight. Interesting places within walking distance, like parks and stores. And yes, I totally called that last element delight so that I could call this recipe the three Ds. But I do think the word kind of fits. That's actually a really specific set of characteristics, isn't it? It goes way beyond what most places in the world can provide. And yet, it's also highly in demand and in fashion right now. Not just among LGBTQ folks, but lots of people, including recent college grads and empty nesters. And in a nutshell, that's what leads to gentrification. Not a lot of places that provide the three Ds, a lot of people who want them. I wanted to know how Ted thought about all this when he was making the decision to buy our house before I was in the picture. And to talk about that, we needed to start with the woman we bought the house from. She went by the colorful nickname Beanie, and she had a very specific habit. Okay, so if we pull back the couch. So this one is a random, it looks like an eyeball. Yeah, it's, it's like a circle with a dot in it and eyelashes coming out. Yeah. Beanie would make little drawings and write little messages on the walls. Some of them were from years before. Some were written to Ted while he was in the process of buying the house. A few are still visible if you look hard enough underneath the layers of paint we've added since. And I'm not sure what the word says, but it's like W, maybe work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or what? I do remember there being some messages like this needs to be cleaned or this needs to be fixed. Oh, like yeah, she was giving really directions. Other messages were about the process of selling this house and moving to another one. Well, they were like still waiting for an effing house. So I, I think she was waiting for her uh, her house that she could move into too. Was yeah. So I could see why that's stressful. You're selling and you're trying to buy a house at the same time. <laughs> Ted had told me that Beanie and her realtor were in a hurry to sell the place, well, yeah. but I never knew why. Why did she want to move? Did you did you get a sense of that? Uh, I think the house was, it was a house she was living in with her husband and they got divorced. I think the house was still in her husband's name. Um, so, and I think as part of their breakup, I think he was trying to sell the house to get her into an, a, one that's better for her, I think. And also kind of separate them, their legal yeah. um, affiliation or, you know, binding. Did you ever get the sense that she didn't really want to leave, but she was doing it because she had to? No, I mean, she did communicate she really wanted a ranch because I think going up and down the stairs... As you know, there's no bathroom on the first floor, so if you got to go to the bathroom, you either go up or down. Um, so yeah, I, I think, and she was older, you know, she was definitely later 50s, maybe early 60s, something like that. This sounded kind of complicated to me. Wanting a ranch, that might have been Beanie rationalizing or making the best of a situation where she didn't have much control. The last thing I wanted to ask Ted about was whether he'd experienced any resentment from our neighbors about the fact that we, two middle-class white guys, lived here. He said no, and then he asked the same question of me. Have you experienced any sort of negative uh, opinions or perspectives or about us living here? Generally speaking, no. There's only one like explicit time, and that was one time I was walking with my parents, and we were walking by a house a little bit south, I guess, on our, our block. And I feel like 
there were some boxes out on the curb with some like old CDs in them and books and stuff as if someone was just kind of getting rid of stuff. They were moving out. And I remember my parents and I stopped and looked through the boxes and there were two women sitting on the porch and I can't remember exactly what they said, but we, you know, we looked through the boxes for a little bit and then we just started walking away. And one woman said to the other woman, something like it's people like that, that we have to leave mm-hmm. yeah, or something. That. that was the gist. Yeah, was and you. you were there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I remember that. Oh, okay. So you were there too. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, I guess that that's, was one. I, I guess I've forgotten that. <laughs> Uh, I don't even know if my parents heard it, but I definitely did. If Ted and I processed that incident at the time, I do not remember. Probably we got distracted with something else and just kind of let it go. Especially since it was such an outlier in terms of the overall reception we've had here. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, 99.999% of interactions we've had with our neighbors have been positive and welcoming. But looking back on it now, Ted had some feelings. I I remember feeling a little angry because I felt like, you know, at first I felt guilty. Yeah. Like, okay, you know, I am impacting people's lives. But then I also felt angry because I chose to live in this neighborhood because it's it's a place I want to live. That's my right. And I'm, if anything, I'm making the place I live in a better place than what it was before. So why, why are you making me feel bad for trying to improve a house that I'm choosing to live in and be a part of this neighborhood? That, but their perspective was probably, <clears throat> you're not making it a better place because you're making it a more exclusive place. So better is a relative term, right? Okay, true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, I'm not saying, I understand your anger too. I think that's a valid emotion yeah but i guess what right do they have to this neighborhood over me Mm, i think that's what it boils down to right yeah just because they happen to be here before me for how many a couple years whatever how many years i don't know Mm -hmm. but there was people here before them there was here people here before them this neighborhoods are always changing i I think the way that they (laughs) they said that to us was I totally get why I made you angry. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. And But I think it's like, well, there's no other space for really talking about this. So I also understand why maybe they felt like they had to express it that way. Mm-hmm. Because how else are they going? They don't, you know, they probably didn't feel like they had much other power. You know? Yeah, very true. Yeah, I guess because they'll, if they move out of the neighborhood, then what forum is there to kind of yeah. bring it up? The thing is, is it us, is it our responsibility or is it the, the, the government's responsibility? Right. right. Or do we use restraint and only live in neighborhoods where it hasn't changed and it's been very stable? That's right. That's where I, my mind goes is I would hate for it to get to, well, I grew up in Brexville, so I just have to stay there. And then I don't, you know, I don't like perpetuating. That's inequitable too, you know? And that's not fair either that, you know, uh, higher income people or whatever, like live out in the suburbs and, and all their resources are kept away from the city. You know, that's, that's not a good system either.
My talk with Ted brought up all kinds of questions, questions I'll be exploring throughout this podcast. But I needed to get a real handle on what was happening in this neighborhood. I needed to get outside my own circles and talk to people who've lived here a lot longer than me or Ted or Natalia. Well, my name is Ricky uh, Moore. I am 27 uh, years old. I just, I love, I love this neighborhood. I, I love it, but I think there's some things that uh, need to be discussed. Ricky Moore is in his late 20s, and he works as a telephone customer service person from home. I met him through a neighborhood Facebook group, and I knew from his posts that he was concerned about gentrification. Ricky and I would meet in person soon enough, but this being the height of COVID-19, we started out with a Zoom call. Ricky is black, and during our call, he wore dark-rimmed glasses that looked pretty much exactly like mine, and a t-shirt advertising the 1990s animated TV show, Ah, Real Monsters. Basically, he looked like he'd fit right in with me and Natalia window shopping at Cool World. Anyway, right away, he laid out his thoughts. I want to preface this by saying I, I do love the changes, okay? Because back, like, when I was a teenager and, and stuff, like, I mean, to be honest, this was still the hood, you know? Like, it was. Um, and it still is. And that's the problem. That sounded really profound and really complex to me. And I wasn't sure I quite understood. Ricky backed up to say, when he was growing up, he remembers everyone in the neighborhood talking to each other. Now, not so much. He feels like the newer, higher income people moving in are trying to keep the people who were here before them at arm's length, sometimes right out in the open by putting up privacy fences and security cameras, sometimes in more subtle ways, like by not sending their kids to neighborhood schools. And that's what like gentrification is to me. And that's what annoys me is that people think the people that are moving into the neighborhood have this totally different perception from whatever uh, real estate agent told them about how it's oh it's up and coming it's this that and that, blah 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 and it is but you are still in the hood you know what i mean you are still going to be interacting with people that have lived in this neighborhood for years decades you know what i mean he said a real turning point for him came about five years ago at the time he was working as a waiter at an upscale restaurant in the neighborhood called graffiti it was just so funny because one of the servers um, was a really good friend of mine. Still, he was just like, he was random. He was like, Ricky, if you like didn't work here, would you like come here to eat? Like, he's like, look at the prices, you know, like look at the, he's like, I couldn't take a girl out to like on a first date here. You know what I mean? And it made me think like, you know what? I never, I hardly see people in the, in that, that were still left around here or just people that are in that live in this neighborhood, um, they were never at these restaurants because yeah. they can't afford it. And that was really daunting to me. I was like, oh my God, that's like, I know that I couldn't afford to take my family out to dinner here at the restaurant that I work at. You know what I mean? And I just feel like it was just a lot of people just coming into the neighborhood to make money and I don't really think that they took into consideration exactly where they are. And mm -hmm. so how have things like evolved for you since then in terms of, uh -huh. do you see it like continuing down that path? Are oh, you even, for sure. more, even more concerned Most definitely. now? Okay. Oh yeah. Like I was like, 
talking to uh, my best friend, Eric, and we were just talking about it. I'm like, there's no way that I can move out of this apartment and still stay in the neighborhood, like by, like alone, like by myself. There's no, there's no way because even the duplexes are like insane. And that's what got me started with being vocal about it because it was really like, 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 wow. Like I, like who can afford this? I mean, I know who can afford this, but nobody that I know could like, you know, I can't say, oh, hey, you know, yeah, this place down the street is like uh, renting or whatever. You know, if you want to take a look at it, I can't even recommend anywhere over here for anybody because it's so expensive. Ricky lives in a two bedroom apartment in a three unit house, along with his mom and his two nephews. He says that they can afford it because he and his mom have known the landlady for so long. She's kept the rent low as a favor to them. But now they were starting to want more space for the boys to play, for his mom's sewing equipment, for Ricky's side business, doing tarot card readings. So, yeah, we're definitely looking to move, but I highly doubt that we'll be able to find somewhere affordable in this neighborhood. He said he feels that's the way gentrification happens in our neighborhood, not so much by people being directly forced to leave, but by attrition. Nobody from my has ever been pushed out of the neighborhood. But yeah. you definitely, it's like, once you leave up out of here, I don't know if you're going to be able to come back. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. You know, things change and stuff like that, but it does not have to change for the worse in the way of it just being like a, just a place where only one type of demographic can reside in. I don't think that's right for any area to be like that. Ricky said he especially doesn't like when he sees houses being bought and flipped by investors, often taking what had been rental housing off the market. People that are flipping houses, that, that get houses or apartment complexes, and they flip them, make some renovations to them, and then they, and then they sell them. They sell them. Um, they usually sell them. They don't even rent them. They sell them. And it's usually white people that move into the neighborhood and people of color are being pushed out. It's the opposite of what happened years ago. I was watching this documentary about Cleveland and um, I believe, um, I might be wrong, but uh, I believe it was in the 60s or something like that where that's what happened to the East Side, but it was the opposite. Black people started moving to the East Side and then white people started moving to the West Side. My talk with Ricky was rich and complex on a lot of levels. I appreciated how he held space for two feelings about the neighborhood. That on the one hand, he was glad about the fact that the neighborhood looks better and has less crime than it did when he was a kid. And on the other, that it's not right that the people benefiting from those changes are mostly white and higher income. It turned out that this conversation was just the start of what would be both a friendship and a professional relationship between us. I found out that not only did Ricky live on the same block as me, but he was a podcaster too. His show is called Ricky Talks. I invited him to work with me as a paid collaborator, and he'll be popping up from time to time in this series to comment on what I'm learning and join me for an interview or two. Let me just say in closing that although Ricky is black and I'm white, I know from conducting many interviews here that the situation in my neighborhood is not as simple as 
black people are unhappy about the neighborhood's direction and getting priced out, and white people are happy and getting rich off the rising property values. During this podcast, you'll be hearing from some of my black neighbors who do welcome the neighborhood's direction and feel no pressure to go anywhere. Our value has almost tripled. Another great place to be at a great time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so we ain't planning on going nowhere. And from white neighbors who feel they're being pushed out despite owning their homes. They said, uh, nothing you can do. And he said, well, my mom will probably have to sell her house. They said, well, that's what she'll have to do. And because what happens in neighborhoods and cities isn't just limited to individual decisions, we'll also be learning about some of the government and corporate systems that have created the changes that are happening here and some of the new ways that those same institutions are now trying to preserve the mix of people that exists here. Maybe the relatively slow economics of a city like Cleveland, where people are not clamoring to move here, mean this is a place where things can turn out differently, where we can find a way to live together. That's all coming up on Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood. Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood is an IdeaStream public media podcast. It's written and reported by me, Justin Glanville, and edited by Mike McIntyre, IdeaStream's executive editor. Sound design and production by John Nungesser. Thanks also to producer Drew Mazius. Our director of strategic content initiatives is Natalie Pillsbury. Mark Rosenberger is our chief of content. Our music is by local musician Aaron Snorton, with additional music from Holziana Raps, Crowinder, The Attraction, and Ketza from the Free Music Archive. Visit us online at ideastream.org slash inside the bricks, where you can see photos and sign up for exclusive behind the scenes newsletters and fill out a survey to give us your thoughts on the series. Until next time. Mm-hmm.